The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Well, good morning, church. How are you? All right. Hey, that was just a real quick reminder that we only have a couple of weeks left to uh, grab those uh, Christmas boxes which are out in the foyer uh, and return them here by November uh, 13th. And we want to, our goal was to fill 200 boxes uh, and get those out uh, so that kids around the world can hear uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, through our generosity. Uh, If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and go uh, to the book of Acts. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 17 today. While you're turning there, I want you to imagine something uh, with me. I want you to imagine that you were told that judgment was coming for all mankind. I want you to imagine that you were told that God dwelled at the peak of the highest mountain that you can imagine. And so the race of your life then was this journey of your life is to to simply climb the mountain trying to uh, strive, strive with all that you are to get to God. And so because only those who were good enough or strong enough to get to the peak, those who could uh, climb the best would be those who actually escape the judgment and enter into heaven. But your climb, you were told, isn't just making it up the mountain, but also hauling up the mountain. Uh, Imagine a, a sled or a cart full of sacrifices and gifts so that when you finally make your way up to God, you would have a backpack or a sled or or a cart full of, of things that would be honorable toward him. Imagine it was like an ox pulling a cart. Imagine you were uh, born into a family that says, okay, we've got to really work hard to get up to God. And these, these sacrifices and these gifts, they're things that you would actually work really hard to accumulate. They would be things that you've accomplished over your entire life. And if you, if you did something that would be unpleasing to God, then you would, you would lose something out of your cart. And if you do something good for God, you would gain something into your cart. And so your whole life is a labor toward earning an acceptance before God as a payment, as a, an achievement or behaviors before him. From birth, your parents would perform religious rituals. They would show you that this race and this this thing is what we're actually dedicating our lives to. If you grew up in a Jewish home, it would probably start with circumcision or something like that. And if you're in another home, maybe it would be baptism. And so this this is what we do to show that we're dedicated to God. And so you take that ritual and you put it in your cart and you head up the mountain. And then from there, as a child, you were placed on this path and you would put this yoke that would be placed around your neck like an ox pulling a cart that you would be taught this is the best path up this mountain. And from an early age, you would train. You would go to 
uh, church, like a, like a spiritual gym. And you would train your, your legs, you'd do squats and calf raises, and, and you, would, you would build your strong muscles, and, and you would increase your endurance so that you could climb and climb and climb, because this climbing and this path, it's not, it's not for the weak, it's not for the unprepared, but only the most dedicated would be able to actually pull this cart up the mountain after years and decades of training and pull and striving and climbing. Maybe you look around and you found yourself doing pretty good. Maybe you're halfway up. Maybe you're 75%. You look around, you're, you're older, you, you have a big cart, you have a, a big yoke around your neck and you're almost up the entire mountain. But in that moment, I want you to imagine that a messenger comes to you and you hear the good news that all of your climbing is worthless. And that the climb is actually impossible. At that moment, you hear the news that what is actually required to get to God is not strong legs, but the only way to God, you were told, is actually a hot air balloon. Doesn't matter how high you've climbed up the mountain. It doesn't matter if you're in the lowest of valleys. It doesn't matter if you have feel behind in this climb up the mountain because you spent the majority of your life like not climbing and not training and not knowing that there actually was a climb. Or maybe you started a climb somewhere in your life and then you got stuck on your way to the top in the, in the cleft of the rock. And you feel like you haven't moved forward in years. And in that moment, you hear that Jesus has actually come down to you and invites you to take the yoke off of your neck and leave behind this dead weight sled and invites you to leave every affirmation, every good work, every religious sacrifice, everything that you've accumulated in your cart over your entire life, every confirmation that you've received, and every ounce of religious heritage that your grandparents and your parents and, and your friends and your family have so ingrained into you that this is the path that you need to get to God. And Jesus comes and simply invites you by trusting him. Get into the basket of grace. You hear this message that everything in your sled is actually meaningless. You can't bring any of it with you because it would simply weigh us down. Let me ask you, would that be good news? Would that be good news for you? What if you spent your whole life filling your trailer? What if you spent every ounce of energy 
trying to do good works? What if your parents trained you by enrolling you into climbing school and you worked your entire life to become an expert climber and that you have already started the journey and you've already climbed over halfway up only to find out that your climbing is actually meaningless before God. And the only thing that counts is surrender. Would that be good news? Would you still think that Jesus' offer of grace would be good news for you? Or would you simply say, that's nice for you. I'll just keep climbing. Or would you surrender all that you've done? Or would you get in the basket of grace and let Jesus bring you to the Father? One of the most exciting books in the Bible, I think, is the book of Acts. And the book of Acts was written by a physician named Luke. And Luke writes in uh, um, Acts chapter 9 that there's a man named Saul who later becomes Paul, which we will read about today and for the rest of the, of the book of Acts. But Saul hated Christianity. He hated it because, let me tell you why, it was a gospel of surrender. It was a gospel of you have nothing to offer to God. Paul hated this message so much that he wanted to destroy the message and wanted to destroy anyone who would proclaim the message. Why? Why would someone be so hostile to such good news? Well, here is a man who spent his whole life climbing. He spent his whole life accumulating a resume of spiritual goodness before his others, and he would earn his acceptance before God. And Saul's message was, oh, you want to be right before God? You want to have eternal life? Then you need to take the law of God, and you need to put it around your neck like a yoke, like an ox, and you need to pull your own way to show that you are good enough before God and that you can actually make it to heaven. And Paul, Paul probably heard the message from Jesus as he was going through Jerusalem. We don't know for sure, but we do know for sure that he heard the message of one of his disciples, Stephen, Proclaiming the gospel of grace, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he, he hated it. And so this was not a message that he devoted his whole life to. The gospel of grace, the, the gospel of I, I can do nothing to actually earn God's favor. He was a member of the Pharisees. And the way of getting right before God offered by Jesus Christ was so radically different that his entire life was threatened by it. If you want to know why people are hostile to the gospel, it's because it requires surrender and people don't want to do that. Paul hated it. It's why he hated Christian message. It's why he hated the gospel. It's why he was persecuting it with all of his might. But if the message of Jesus is true, 
then Paul would have to leave everything that he's built and he would have to devote his entire life. He would have to forsake and admit that everything that he's done was actually a mistake and that he is saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. If this message were true, everything that he built up, he would have to leave behind to actually follow Jesus. And listen, that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what happened. He said, everything that my life was built on is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ is my Lord. And in that moment, he surrenders to Jesus. And listen, Paul becomes one of the most powerful preachers and teachers for the Christian faith that we've ever seen on the planet. And, and, and listen, it's not strange. Some people say, man, it's kind of strange that you would actually, Eric, you would devote your whole life to like preaching the gospel. Like why would you, why would you do that? Why would you forsake everything? Like, you know there's not a lot of money in it, right? Like, you know there's not a lot of, lot of, lot of uh, pull in that. You know people will hate you. You know the church will kind of leave you. You know, you know people kind of stab you in the back. Why would you devote your entire life to this gospel? Well, let me tell you two things. One, Jesus told me to do it. And two, because it's absolutely true. The gospel is true. And if it's true, it changes everything. It really is true. Jesus really did come. Jesus really did die. Jesus did rise from the grave. And Jesus invites everyone to trust him by faith. And it's not something that we earn or that we do. It's something that we are given as a gift of grace. This is absolutely true. In Acts chapter 17, in the book of Acts, we read a sermon that Paul gives in Athens uh, after he surrendered his life to Jesus. He absolutely knows it's true. He's on his way to persecute Christians. Jesus shows up in his life, knocks him over, and saves him. And he tells, here's the difference between the Christian gospel and every other religion in the world. I'm going to read a large portion of it. We're going to start in Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked. Everyone say provoked. Okay, you're with me. Come on. His spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So there's something in him that's not sitting right. I see all this worship going around, and, and something in me is provoked. So he, respond, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the devout persons in the marketplace. Let me just pause right there and say he, he tells the gospel in the temple, and he tells the gospel on the streets. Just so you know, that's how it works. And he reasoned with them every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others say he seems to be a preacher, a foreign divinity, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's the gospel. And he took and he took, they took him and brought him to Areopagus. That is Mars Hill. That's where all the debates that are happening. And saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting? 
For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing. Everyone say nothing. They spend their time in nothing except for telling or hearing something new. And so some people are like, I just want to hear something new. I just want to hear a new teaching. Not the gospel teaching. Just give me something fluffy and light and easy and new. That's so radical. Verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of Mars Hill, Aeropagos, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Say very religious. He says, I see you are very religious, for as I passed along, I observed objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Say anything. That he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. Say everything. So he needs nothing, he gives everything, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. Everyone say, seek God. They should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. There are two verses that stand out as why people feel so threatened by this message. Verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He says, if God is the one who made everything, every mountain, every star, every flower, every fish in the sea, and the sea itself, every ounce of sand and every person you'll ever talk to over the history of the entire world, if God created everything and put everything in it, how is it are you going to build him a house? What are you going to do for him? How are you going to confine him to walls made out of materials that he actually created? If God needed you to build him a temple to be worshipped, if he needed something from you, he wouldn't be God. He says you can't Build something that would somehow honor him because he sits over and above all of it. Then, verse 25, he doesn't dwell in places. He's everywhere. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life breath, 
and everything. Now, this is the worst news in the world, and it is the best news in the world. Because, listen, if you feel strong, you feel righteous, you feel wholly self-sufficient, you feel morally right before God, if you were to ask, are you going to heaven, you'd say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. If you feel like a pretty good person, and you feel like you're able to climb, and you're able to serve God, and you're able to tow with you all the contributions that work for God, this is bad news because God is not served by human hands because he's not lacking. In other words, if this message is true about God, then all self-sufficient people who think they can negotiate with God, are deluding themselves. They're living a lie. This is what threatened Paul in the early days. This is why Saul got so hostile and made him hate Christianity, because he was very successful. He was very religious. He was a Pharisee. He had accomplished things religiously and morally that was beyond all of his peers, and he was beyond any category that we could ever imagine. His whole identity hung on him being a good person. That was all of his strength. That was his boast. That was his significance. That's what he would bring to God. And then, here comes a message about God that says God is fully sufficient. God does not need anything. God is not lacking in any way. And who can bring a gift to God that he might be repaid? Answer, no one. So listen to me. Why is this bad news? Because if you can't negotiate with God, that means you can't put God in your debt by doing things for him. And if you can't put God into your debt by doing things for him, that means you have nothing to negotiate with him on, which means God owes you nothing. What are you going to do for him? What are you going to bring him? But, but, but God, I did all this. God, don't you see my card? Don't you see what I've done? I grew up in this thing. I did this ritual. I did this thing. I went here. I said this. I went to church. I memorized things. What are you going to give to him? He owes you nothing. It's all his, but God, I'll give you my life. Please, he will take that life if he wants it. He gives life, breath, and everything. Which means you can't say, God, I'll do this if you do this. If you do this, I'll do this. God, I promise I will never if you would just simply You can't bring a gift to God. He owns everything. God is not served by human hands as though he is in need. But the good news is that the true God is a giving God. Paul did not hear this as good news. 
it literally shattered his life. It seemed like everything he worked for was in vain. Why all the study of God's law? Why all the moral striving? Why all the religious efforts? If God can't be served, it'd be like spending your life climbing and climbing and climbing only to discover that eternal life comes in resting and surrendering. So the radical self-sufficiency of God does not come as good news to those who are self-righteous and performing and moral and good people. But on the other hand, this is the best news in the world, that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, but he gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. So if you are weak, if you're helpless, if you look at the mountain and say, there's no way. If you look at the cart and you say, that's too heavy. And you know that you are sinful before a holy God and you need God's help, then this comes as the best news in the world. And it's absolutely true. That God is the kind of God that cannot be served, but he loves to serve. He loves to give. To those who feel uh, morally self-sufficient, it would be bad news. It would threaten a way to take away your boast. So you can't stand before people and say, you need to be better like me. To those who feel morally self-sufficient, bad news. To those who feel morally desperate and hopeless, it is good news. Holy, righteous God would say, just simply trust me. If you're taking notes, write this down. The good news is that God, the God who doesn't need me, would be for me everything that I need. The God who doesn't need me would serve me by being everything that I need. That's why Jesus came. To be for me everything I need. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. This is the words of Jesus. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. How does he serve? By giving his life. Giving his life as a ransom for many. Jesus tell us why he came into the world. This is so central to the Christian message. Christ, the son of God, the son of man, lived among us. He came to us in our desperate climb, knowing that we could not make it. And he did not come to just simply recruit workers. He didn't come to recruit servants. He did not come like, like an employment company to a job fair. He doesn't come looking for the brightest and the best and the strongest and those who are religiously mature so that he can maybe hire them and they can move his company forward and somehow make God more prosperous. God doesn't get more prosperous. He needs nothing. No. He didn't come to be served. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He came because we needed him. God 
is not served by human hands. He does not need anything, and neither does Jesus, his son. God is not served. Jesus is not served. They do not lack. They do not need. Jesus came not because he needed us, but because we needed him. Because we need him. And how many of you know there's hundreds of ways that we need him? Thousands of ways that we need him. But he tells us in this passage that there's one way that is most important need. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Everyone say ransom. As a ransom for many. What we need most of all is someone who would make the impossible climb. Someone who would climb in our place. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, that we've all fallen short, that none of us can make it up. And if we're honest ourselves, we have neglected and offended God very deeply. And, and so God is not first in our lives. We've all looked away from God. We've all chased other things. He's not first, nor second, nor third, or even fourth in our lives. A lot of times, he's way down there on the list. And we know that that is offense to him. And we are in grave danger because the scripture tells us that the righteous judgment is coming. And if the righteous judgment is coming and we can't do anything to make up for this judgment, we can't climb enough and we can't even bring a gift to him and we can't serve him and we can't negotiate with him and we can't impress him in any way with any of our morality or good deeds. We are held captive under the wrath of God and destined for righteous judgment, which is why, let me tell you this, your greatest need in your life is not health, it is not wealth, it is not marriage repair, it's not a good job, it's not obedient kids. Your greatest need is to someone to die in your place. Someone who's not like us. Someone who's holy. Someone who is righteous unlike ourselves, someone who had never sinned, someone who doesn't deserve to die. We need someone who is righteous, who would ransom us from the wages of sin. His name, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, listen, you can't serve me. I actually came to serve by giving you your greatest need that's to die in your place. To die the death that you deserve to die. This is incredibly good news. God is so great. God is so self-sufficient that he cannot be served. He doesn't need anything. His son Jesus is so great and he is so valuable that his death in our place was a sufficient ransom to pay all of our debt before God. What do I need to do? Put on a yoke? Climb a hill? Pull a cart? What do I need to do? Surrender. Surrender. The question is, will we believe this? Will we receive this as good news? Will we receive this as the most precious gift that the world has ever known? This is the gospel call. This is the invitation call. This is a believing gospel. This is a receiving gospel. This is not a gospel of religious efforts. This is a gospel of surrendering to his service for us. Jesus lived the perfect life. 
Jesus died the death that we deserve and he offers us himself in our place. And he works all things together for our good. He never leaves us, he never forsakes us. And this is not because we are righteous or we've earned it or that we're good people. It's just simply because he loves us. And he invites us in. So the core to this message that Paul gives is the God that you, you don't understand because you think you have to serve God. The true God is a giving God. He is not served by human hands. He is not lacking. He gives himself everything. How do we know that Jesus is this God? He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. In Athens, there were all kinds of temples. Probably a lot of them are still present. There's a lot of idols. There's the God of Artemis. That's the goddess of prosperity and money. So if you wanted to have prosperity and money, you would go and worship that God. But you don't go empty-handed. You have to bring a sacrifice. You have to bring some offering. There's the God of Athena, the goddess of wisdom and politics. So if you want to be smart and you want to be wise, you would go and you would make sacrifices of worship. There was the God of Nike or Nike. How many of you have those shoes? I got a ton of pairs in my house. The God of Nike was the goddess of victory. Worshiped by athletes and warriors. So if you want to run faster and jump higher and be strong and you got to make sacrifices. There's the God of Aphrodite, the uh, sexuality and fertility and beauty. And so if you want to be seen as beautiful, you have to go and worship and make your sacrifice. All these are false gods and worship to them. It means getting something from them. I have to bring something to God in order to get something from God. And so he says, as I look around the world today, I see that you are very religious and you are very idol worshiping and it stirs my heart. I that I live among a people that are very worshipful to whatever it is that they want. Many will say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Actually, the majority of people are very religious. People who don't go to church sometimes are more religious than people who do. Many stop going to church. Why? Because they're religiously pursuing self and comfort. I don't have time for that. I'm worshiping the God that I want. You do what you want. I'll religiously chase the God that I want. Many religiously worship idol of money. You have to make sacrifices. You have to work long hours. You have to bring your offering in order to get her. You have to climb, climb and climb. The idol of, of sex and acceptance, bringing your offering and making your religious sacrifice to get her. The idol of comfort or fame or power or religious righteousness, religiously work hard, work hard, work hard so that you can get her. Lace up your boots, fellas. Let's climb. Climb, pull and pull, strive and strive in order to get whatever God you worship. And in all your religious pursuits, there is a God that you do not know. 
the unknown God. This one true God is not someone you have to work hard to please. God has come to you. He has made himself known to you. He has done everything that's needed to please himself. He does not live in temples. He is not served by human hands. He is the one who gives life. He is the one that actually gives breath and everything, and his name is Jesus. Look in verse 26. And this God, this one true God, he has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods, everyone say time. So the times that you live and the boundaries, say boundaries, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So time that you would live and where you're going to live, it's why you're not in the Old West right now. Time and boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He's actually, the truth is, he is not far from any of us. He's not up in that mountain that you can't get to. He's actually right here in this moment. He is not worshiped as a means to get something from him. But what we get is him. That's the beauty of the gospel. And he is more precious than anything that he's ever created. We have this longing to worship created things over the creator of all things. And he says, I am the treasure and I am right here. Look, no Further, no more sacrifice is required. The only sacrifice that is offered is the blood of Jesus Christ. I am right here. Find me, see me, accept me, receive me, come in to me by grace. And that means God serves us through the ransom of Jesus. And God determined that where you are and where I am and who you're with is not by accident, but it's actually given to you by God. Why? So that you can find God. So you could see God, not get something from him, but actually get him. What that means is you work where you work. You live where you live. You have the parents that you have. You have the experiences that you have. You have the friends that you have. You have the neighbors that you have. You have the roommates that you have. And you are here today. And God loves you. And he has a plan for you. And he requires nothing from you. And he just simply says, surrender to me. And I will give you everlasting life. I will forgive you of your sins. I will wash you clean. I will clothe you with righteousness. I will make you holy. You are mine. I am yours. Don't look for something from me. You get me. That's what he says. And you're here not by accident. And the people around you in your life are not an accident. The interactions you have with the, with the checkout lady or the person uh, walking by you on the street or the person in the cubicle next to you or the kids in your classroom, it's not by accident. 
It's so that we would see God and know God and find God. Listen, and he's not far. It's not, oh, you want God? Just come here. You want God? Just go there. You want God? You've got to do something. No, no, no. He's right there. So, how do we live knowing that God is not served? How do we worship an everlasting fountain of life knowing that God is not lacking? God is the living fountain, the spring that never runs dry. He is not a watering trough that we have to work really hard to fill up with our buckets. How do we worship? How do we serve this God? That is the everlasting living fountain of life. I'll tell you how. You drink. You just drink. You get down on your knees and you drink. You taste and you see that the Lord is good. And when you taste and you see and you drink from this fountain, you know what you have to do? You have to invite others to drink. This is the most tasty. This is the most joyful. This is the most rich drink I've ever drank in my life. Listen, we're not looking for something else. You say, come to the fountain and drink. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. Look at how it ends here. Verse 30, he ends his sermon like this. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. You did not know this one true God. You were ignorant to him, but now you know him. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now, say now, now, he commands all people everywhere to repent, turn around, leave all that behind. Leave your religious efforts, leave your self-sufficiency, leave your sin, leave it all, turn it all. Everyone everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. Say man. Okay, so what that means is that God is going to judge the world not on how much you can pull up the mountain or how much religious duty you have or how many religious accolades you've achieved, but he's actually going to judge the world in righteousness by a man. Guess his name. Jesus Christ. Look at what it says. By a man who he has appointed, God has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to us all. How can we be for sure? How can we know? How can we know that we can trust Jesus and not this big cart of accolades? How can we be sure? Because God has raised him from the dead. It's the greatest news. Since Jesus has been raised from the dead, God no longer intends for times of ignorance to continue. Paul says that by the resurrection, he's given us assurance. You will not be judged by religion. You will not be judged by your church attendance or your religiosity or your morality or your effort or if you feel like you're a good person. You will not be judged on how high you climbed or what's in your backpack but rather whether or not you have surrendered to the grace and the work of Jesus Christ for you. By faith in Jesus and repentance of sin. Paul says to these men at Mars Hill, you didn't know 
but now you know. His name is Jesus Christ. God raised him from the dead, and you can trust him. God raised him from the dead. In the times of ignorance are over, Jesus Christ is the necessary object for saving faith, and he commands all people everywhere to not do something for him as though he needs something, but rather to surrender and repent, climb into his basket of grace. How do we respond to this invitation? Matthew 11, Jesus says, come, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of faith and obedience are easy and light because even when Jesus puts it on us, he's the one that carries it. He carries obedience fully. He died for us completely. He ransomed us from sin and death and he invites us to come. Here are three responses. As the band comes, let's look at the responses. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked. Say mocked. Hmm. Jesus, that's funny. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some Join him and believe. Say believe. Some will mock. Some will say, I want to hear more. And some will believe. Here's the deal. Right now listening, some of you might be mocking. Some of you might say, you know what, I'm not real sure, but I want to hear more. This is a great place for you. And some of you need to leave behind your cart and just simply believe. When you look at the people of our city, you find your heart stirring because of the idolatry. We have a world that is desperate for Jesus. He is the one true God and he is not served by human hands, but he is to be worshiped because he gives life, breath, and everything. We wanna love people so much that we wanna ask people to leave their idols. We refuse to be silent because that's what God did for us. Jesus saw us in our idolatry and instead of condemning us and writing us off, he says, come. Come, come and trust Jesus by grace. Trust what he's done for us. Let others know what he's done because listen, he is not far from each one of us. Let's go to him. Oh God. Lord, we can pray inadequate prayers because all of our prayers and all of our asking and all of our coming 
is filtered by the blood of Jesus. Lord, today we humbly come before you. And maybe the most difficult thing we can do is leave behind our goodness. Our achievements. Our own righteousness. our Lord and our Savior, you came not to be served.